Welcome back to Geekish Cast. Today I'm joined by Andrea and Roberto Molinari, who have just done a comic called, and I'm going to have trouble with the name, it's The Shepherd, but you have a subtitle on. What is the subtitle? The subtitle is Apocatastasis. It's a Greek term. It is related to uh, what the Latin version of that would be a revelation of some kind, yes? Uh, it's actually not, uh, it's actually uh, deals with the idea of a restoration, with the idea of a full restoration. Oh, okay. So I was like, I was, I was. You were thinking of apocalypse. Yeah. Yes, sound, I was. It has a very similar sound to it. Okay. Yes, I was. See, I, I, uh, I, I paid attention to my catechism a little <laughs> bit. Not enough, apparently. <laughs> well, you were so, on the right on, track. I, I was a pretty close connection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did. Um, I'll quit talking about me right after this, but I did learn a little bit of Attic Greek when I was about nineteen. I could read the New Testament when I was younger, so. So I knew a little bit of the terms, but not all of them. And that would, by the way, I, not to get too technical, but that would be Koine Greek. Is Attic Greek is a more formal. The Koine is the stuff that Alexander's men would have been speaking, and it's what the New Testament was written in. Uh, yes, you are correct. Actually, I say Attic Greek for the ease of use, though. Yeah. But uh, most people understand it, or I've even heard people refer to it, which is completely wrong, as Homeric. But that's a, a completely different dialect. Yeah. But anyhow, that's enough uh, enough <laughs> biblical study uh, for you, one day. We were, that was way off the geek. Uh, that's on the geek yeah. scale. Way off the geek scale. Yeah, well, it's, it's on the geek scale. It's just in a different area. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Andrea and Roberto, you guys are a father and son writing father and son writing team. Yes. Right. Okay. How did you guys? I mean, I don't know what you guys do for a living, but how did you guys look at each other one day and go, "Let's write this comic book"? You want to give us a little detail on that? Uh, sure. I, I can start out and Barrett will just jump in as you, as you wish. Sure. Um, yeah, sure. Basically, this whole book started as a nightmare that I had. Uh, I, it was like no other uh, nightmare I've ever had before or since. Uh, usually, the dreams that I have and nightmares, you have them. They're very intense, just like everybody else. But when you wake up, they kind of like slip through your fingers like sand uh, and you forget what they're about even though they were so vivid. But uh, this particular nightmare was so vivid and violent that I, I woke up, uh, my heart beating out of my chest, and I'm in a cold sweat, and I'm next to my wife, and she's, you know, what's wrong? You know, and I, and I, I told her, and she was horrified, uh, because in my dream, I basically dreamed that Roberto had gone to a party, uh, tried methamphetamine, and it had killed him. And there was a lot more to the nightmare. It just was uh, a, a really horrific uh, nightmare. And it, un unlike a lot of nightmares or dreams where they kind of focus in on one thing, it was like a story, uh, that it kind of strapped you in, uh, like a roller coaster and just took you from the beginning to the end, whether you wanted to go or not. And, um, I was really upset and my wife was upset and, and Roberto had never done anything like that. I mean, he's a pretty, was a pretty good kid, uh, growing up. And, uh, you know, I finally, uh, decided that I needed to tell him about this dream because I thought, well, what if this, you know, portending, you know, foretelling some kind of terrible catastrophe that's on the path for us. So I thought I had to sit him down and tell him about this dream. And his whole reaction was, wow, that's really cool. And I'm like, well, that wasn't really what I was going for with this, you know, uh, but that was his reaction from the beginning. And I'll just kind of hand it to Roberto and let him continue uh, tell the story from there. Okay. So basically once we established that we, well, like once I established that I liked the whole thing uh, and basically how it went, 
then became uh, the nagging process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, you know, Dad was, uh, like, you know, we've already kind of established that, like, Dad's, you know, pretty well-educated guy. He's got a Ph.D. in early Christian theology, and basically he was, like, doing uh, a job that kind of required him all the time for that kind of stuff. And then he finally got a break. What was it? The summer? It was like the summer of... Um, 2011. That... June 2011. Okay. Yeah. And that's when he finally had like some free time. And basically for this, I was more of a like a co-pilot. Like, I don't know how to describe it any other way, but like a co-pilot writer and then like heavy editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just kind of like actually got him to sit down. And that's when we started like making... Like, act like, you know, words on paper, basically. Okay. Had had either one of you ever written a comic book before? I mean, Andre, obviously, you've written uh, academic papers. Right. Um, right. I had actually written uh, one comic book before that, and it was a weird situation. A, uh, a gentleman that I knew at that uh, couple of years before then uh, had an idea to submit a comic book to Marvel. Uh, a daredevil story of all things. And he knew that I liked daredevil and he knew that I was a writer and said, well, you know, would you consider writing up uh, an issue or two of this story idea that I have? And so I ended up writing an issue of it. We of course submitted it to Marvel with great, you know, naivete, like they were going to, you know, respond to us, which by the way, they never did. But um, what was interesting about it for me was that I found that I could do this. I could, I could write this, uh, this style, you know, this, uh, script, because basically, even though I had never done it before, of course, I'd read thousands of comic books and, uh, you know, I, I went online, I got a, you know, you, it's very easy to get the kind of a, a structure of how to submit a comic script, you know, what it should look like. And I got one, I think it was actually from Dark Horse, if I remember, and I pulled it down off the internet and used their structure that they proposed and, and wrote my story. And I found that I could do it. And, uh, and so that kind of was, and Roberto, of course, knew all this. And so that's why when he started the nagging process of saying, you, you need to do this, Dad, you need to write this up, um, he knew that I had done it before and he could play that card. He could say, well, you know, you've done this. You could, you could do it. And this whole co-pilot thing that he was telling you, that's a very nice way of him saying that, you know, not telling you that he was leaning over my shoulder. <laughs> I was like having a parrot uh, while, while I was writing. But uh, it, was, it turned out to be tons of fun uh, because, you know, uh, there was that give and take back and forth between us about as we were writing the scenes up. And, uh, and you know, because the dream really didn't have any dialogue. You know, it was all right. All these things were intrinsically felt and seen. But, you know, it's not like you're hearing the dialogue as people are talking. You're just kind of sensing what's happening as you're being taken along in the, the nightmare. So we had to, of course, create all that all the dialogue. And so that's where a lot of that give and take really, really came into play. OK. And Roberto, had you ever written a comic book or thought about writing a comic book or anything before that? No, I was uh, I was more prose. Like I, I had uh, always done prose before that. Okay. And that's kind of like um, where, I, where I thought I would end up sticking, but I actually kind of really like the graphic novel format. Gotcha. So um, did you write um, fiction, or what kind of writing did you do? Uh, basically just, like, short pieces. Um, and then once I got to college, uh, it, and I ended up learning more about the script format. Uh, from Especially, like, uh, I had a screenwriting class that was, like, really, uh, really influential on how I viewed writing in general. That was pretty big. Okay. 
Yeah, there's a fellow I interviewed last month, um, had an outstanding concept for a story. It was Bigfoot, the sword of the Earthman, hmm. and it's Bigfoot on Mars as a warlord. Wow. And, oh, it was, I was, when I heard that, I was like, how had that never been done before? That is just such a, just like a right-in-your-face awesome concept. Yeah, definitely. But I think he, if I remember right, he was trying to be a screenwriter, conceived this idea, and because he was in Los Angeles, he took a short course on writing comic books. And that's how he did it. So sure. it's always kind of interesting to hear how people go from one format or another and then, you know, learn how to write a comic book. Well, I think it's actually easier to get a graphic novel or a comic book made certainly than a film because of, first of all, the cost of the I'm, budget. Yeah. You know. there, I mean, there is a cost. Make no mistake. There's a cost to making a, a graphic novel. We, I, we know this very well, um, but it's nothing like what it would take to, to do a film. Right. Now, as far so once you had the idea together, you know, did you write a full script or yes, after, that's okay. the only way that that I work. Um, I've talked to other writers who do it a lot more loosey goosey, and I just can't do that because okay. I'm. And Berto will tell you this. I'm all about the edits and and what uh, even you know, would be like the other option? Like how else would you do it? Like other than just having an actual full script. Uh, I've talked to a number of artists that don't, our writers that don't do it that way. So I know that we're not, uh, we're, there are other ways of approaching it. And yeah, and I've seen people take a short treatment or one full script or two full scripts plus, you know, one page treatments for the follow ups. I've seen people do it other ways, but I've noticed these days the people that tend to get things done are the people who actually finish the concept. Yeah. You know? Well, we we were interested in writing from the beginning, not like I don't want to write a monthly comic book mm -hmm. uh, because I really wonder about how well, how how easy it is to keep the quality where you want it to be when you have that gun pressed to the back of your skull. Um, Right. Whereas if you write a graphic novel, you know, before I let it go out of my hands to get lettered or to get published for that matter, I have it right where I want it. And yeah, the so, editing process was just—it was. Uh, I think the word would be grueling. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's excellent. Well, so why don't you? I mean, I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Um, why don't you give us a real quick idea of what uh, your book is about? And I've got a couple comments that I want to add in, and then we'll talk a little bit more about how you guys got it made. Sure. Barrel, do you want to do this one? Uh, okay. Hmm. Where to start? Like. Am I like? Am I just giving them like a like a genre idea of what we're talking about, or like story? Well, why don't you give them a real quick? Because again, I want people to read the books. I don't want it spoiled, but kind of give us the setup. Give us like your elevator pitch for the book. How would you, if you were trying to get somebody to read this book, what is the short descriptor you would give to get them hooked on the idea? Okay, uh, I guess I would say uh, first off, if you liked the crow that you mm-hmm. might like this because it's in a similar vein. Uh, basically, the, you know, uh, the nightmare talking about, uh, like, that was, you know, directly applied into the story. So, like, we're talking about uh, Val is the name of the sun in this story, and Val goes out to a party with some friends, and he ends up dying. And this ends up sending, uh, you know, Lawrence, who is the father in this, into this, you know, spiral of despair, and he feels like, you know, Val is calling out to him from the other side. And the result of this is that it eventually drives him to the point of suicide. And that is kind of like, it's weird to think about, but that's kind of like the initial incident 
that actually gets the meat of the story going because all of the mm-hmm. really important stuff happens in the afterlife. Um, and once, like, it's kind of uh, Lawrence's adventure in the afterlife to find Val and to kind of avenge himself of the wrongs that he sees as having been done to him and his family by, you know, the guys who gave Val the drugs. Okay. And, well, here's, so, your book reminded me very much of two things, and I'm glad you brought up The Crow, because that was definitely one of the things I thought of when reading it. The other was The Spectre. I don't know if you guys are very familiar with very that character. So. Yeah, very much okay. so. Cool. Were you were you consciously aware of any influences when uh, you were writing this? I would say not the Spectre, uh, although mm-hmm. I like the Spectre. But the problem that I've always had with the Spectre is that he's just an Avenger. Uh, that, yes. In other words, it's like, and it's oftentimes a very poetic kind of vengeance. Um, you know, it's related to the sins of the person being punished, kind of thing. Their punishment is related, you know, kind of an ironic turning in on on what what they did. And um, to the character me, is nothing other than like it, the character is literally nothing more than personified karma, except active. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Were, yeah. And it, I, I guess the problem that I had for that was the same problem. Like one of the big things that's working in the background with the stories of the shepherd is, I, you, you need to understand, I've read a lot of classical literature, and especially mm-hmm. I've always been interested in apocalypses. I've been interested in otherworldly journeys. Like, for example, if you read Virgil's Aeneid, book six deals with his journey in the afterlife and through the afterlife, Mm -hmm. uh, places of punishment, places of, of, um, of reward, uh, the kind of the middle area, uh, in the afterlife. Um, I, and you know, the epic of Gilgamesh, the Sumerian, uh, epic, um, Things like like that, and even more modern. More, I say more modern by by comparison to the ancient world, but something like Dante's Divine Comedy, which is you know modern being a relative term there. But well, uh, uh, comparative to Gilgamesh, which is six thousand years old. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but like take take for example Dante's work. Dante's Divine Comedy is broken up into three parts. It's the Inferno, the um, the uh, Purgatorio, and the Paradiso, and uh, one of the things that always bothered me about the Inferno is the Inferno, uh, which is hell, there's, it's a story of all these souls. This soul, these souls did this kind of sin, and so therefore they are punished in this ironically related way, okay? And there's literally no hope at all, none, okay? And even the sign, think of the sign, when you enter into hell, the idea of abandoned hope, all you who enter, you know, here. And, um... And that's the same way that the specter struck me, is that there wasn't going to be any chance for any redemption, any learning process at all. So in other words, like the, the idea of hell in Dante's you know, Inferno is it's not like you're there for a thousand years and like, oh, God, I could have had a V8. I was such an idiot in my life. I get it. I totally get it. It's like, oh, no, no, you've been there for a thousand years and you're going to be there for eternity kind of thing. And that always struck me as very dissatisfying. And when I would read on into his purgatorio, I liked it so much more because there was a sense of hope that these were not perfect souls. These were flawed individuals, um, but that there was a process that these souls would go through and eventually move on to a much better place. 
The only quibble that I really had with Dante's approach, and here I am challenging the great master, um, was that he treated souls in silos. So in other words, what I mean by that is that, you know, souls who did this kind of sin had this kind of prescribed, you know, treatment in purgatory. And what I've tried to do with the shepherd, and Berto and I have talked about this many times, is treat the souls as individuals, as, you know, that each one of these souls has a backstory. And they're not um, a carbon copy of each other. They're not, you know, in, existing in silos, that there's a lot more. They're complex, uh, you know, why they did what they did, their background, all that stuff. So that's kind of what's been uh, lurking in the background of the shepherd stories. Right, whereas you deal with actual people and not types uh, or, or casts of people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And we feel uh, more personal. You know, it's more intimate yeah. in terms of the stories. Right, and I didn't want to imply that you were that you were basing it off the spectrum in any way. It just that's what it reminded me no, of. No, but I, I could see of, it. I could see where yeah. you're – yeah, because there's certainly a certain amount of that in, in uh, The Shepherd. And also I've had mm -hmm. other people compare it to uh, um, Ghost Rider. Uh, oh yeah. So there's a certain, you know, a certain amount of that as well. That sense of the the Avenger, you know, and punishing yep. those people who do wrong. No, I can see that, but the crow definitely. Oh, I, yeah. That was it definitely came through to me. Um, I'm going to share with you guys something I don't talk about a whole lot. My wife and I actually lost a child to a drug overdose seven years ago. Oh wow! So this was a very challenging read for me. Because there is a certain amount of revenge fantasy, obviously, that comes... I mean, it, it's spelled out right in the first, you know, two books there. Sure. Because that is what goes through your head, or at least what what went through mine. So for me, it was a bit of a difficult read. Um, so I, I didn't want to share that ahead of time so I could kind of express it here while we spoke about it. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean... There were parts where I was reading the book where I felt like I was going to drum my fingers or just kind of, like, stare off into the distance. So... I do think you encapsulate a feeling that you may or may not realize how much of it uh, actually exists for somebody in that situation. Um, so uh, a, a, a partial congratulations on catching it, but also a partial shame on you for making me feel that way again. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, and it's, it's quite okay because I understand that that's me. You know what I mean? But um, it, was, it was a very uh, a rough read for a couple pages, so... Sure. I, I do want to let you know that. Um, and I'm not saying like that's nothing bad in any way. It's probably actually something good that I was emotionally invested as much as I was. Well, I think there's a there's a lot of emotions in that story. I've heard it repeatedly. In fact, um, I just had a reviewer uh, that she said that she cried through the whole thing. And uh, and I mean, she she loved the story, but she said that she cried through the whole thing. And my wife, to this day, the first time she read it, she cried. And uh, she doesn't even like to talk about the story because it's so personal to her. You know, um, oh, sure. every one of the characters is a member of our family, right down to the dog that appears in the in the book. And um, so it is it's a very personal story. And and I, I guess why it was so violent for me in the nightmare is that my son, Roberto, and I have always been very close. And uh, there's a little story just to share with you to kind of illustrate how the, the roots of this um, I was a grad student in my doctoral program at the time that my wife told me she was pregnant. I had always wanted children, you know, but we were 
really poor. Anybody who's been in a program like that, you know, they tell you, first of all, you're not supposed to work. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to starve to death. So I pretty much have to. I'm going to work at least 20 hours a week. But the amount of reading that you're doing in that program is literally insane. I mean, it's like drinking water out of a fire hose to try to illustrate right. it for you. And, and we're not making it. We're barely. She's a social worker. So, you know, she's hauling down big bucks. And I'm, you know, working for the church at the time. So, again, you know, part time. So it couldn't be worse. And there are literally times where like, we have like a stick of butter and like a quarter of a loaf of bread and, and just a little bit of milk left. In the, and that was like what was there, you know. And then she tells me she's pregnant. And I'm going, oh, God, you know, this is, you know, this is not how I envisioned this unfolding. And uh, I was not supported during the pregnancy. Uh, and and I really had a hard time relating to it, you know, because I was so I, I felt like this was going to be a failure. I was going to be the worst father. I wouldn't be able to feed my my kid. You know, I, I won't even I don't know. How I'm going to get diapers. You know, I'm going to be like that Raising Arizona movie with Nick Cage where I'm like robbing, you know, the 7-Eleven and getting diapers out of 7-Eleven. I, I had all kinds of things flashing through my head. And, uh, and, but then the day that he was born, uh, they, they handed him to me right away. And he gripped this little baby, gripped my, my finger, my, my finger on my right hand, my pointer finger, and held on to it for the first 30 minutes of his life. And I broke down. I mean, it was like, I just told him, I said, you know, if I made you feel like you weren't wanted, that was never the case. I, it was always me. It was never you. And that became like this launching pad for us being kind of like inseparable. And so, you know, uh, you know, I, he, when he was two years old, it's actually in the book. There's a line in the book that when he was two years old, he was toddling around my apartment saying, I can't play with you because I've got to write my dissertation. I mean, two years old. And he's saying that, you know, wow. and, uh, you know, he was with me all the time, you know, and even like some of the early jobs that I had, I was working in the church. I literally had to get it written into my contract that he would be with me because I couldn't afford to work for the salary that they were giving me and pay for daycare. Right. And so, it, you know, he was like, you know, attached to me. And so we had this bond that came. And so when I had this nightmare of him dying like that, I just lost it. And see, that's what literally happens in the book is Lawrence loses it. And there are some people when they read it, they don't, they say, well, that his actions are really selfish. And I'm like, take a look again. He loses it. He, he breaks with reality. Now, granted, his sense that something is wrong with Val is on the money. But he, he, he really has a psychotic break. You know, he's not doing well, you know. Uh, right. And, and I, I really, in my nightmare, I, and I think, you know, if I were to lose him or one of my other children that I – I wouldn't be able to cope with, you know, and that really comes across, I think, in the book for people. And obviously it hit you uh, with that as well. You know, and of course, obviously you suffered it at point blank range. Right. Well, and, you know, I don't. So your character, Lawrence, commits suicide. Um, and that's what is that? That's that that kind of is the starting point for the rest of the story. And I don't know if people who haven't been through either a severe depression or a horribly life-changing loss understand that that can be a thought that you have. And it's probably something you should tell somebody about and talk to somebody about. Absolutely. But, 
But the idea of, you know, splattering your brain over a windshield doesn't come, it's not that unusual when you're going through a severe depression. Um, now, if you are having that thought, please let somebody know. <laughs> you know Absolutely. Talk to your doctor. Yeah. Absolutely. But um, so I could see how somebody outside of the situation that's similar would look at that and go, well, you know, that's, that's that guy just kind of taking a chicken shit way out. I, I could see both. You know what I mean? Sure. Wow, that was a little cathartic to hear all that. Um, so anyhow, on a lighter you guys note. have a yeah. what's that? <laughs> on a lighter yeah. note, yeah. Well, so you guys have a finished script now, right? How did you start approaching? I mean, so you got a finished script. You know, you're making a comic book, but now you need somebody to draw it. So what was your next step after getting the script together? Well, let me insert here that I sure. thought that writing it would get him off my back. No, uh-huh. <laughs> no, he was, was determined. He got me to write it, sit down with him and write it, uh, but he didn't kind of like explain that he was serious about this thing. And he he had it in his head, I think, right, Rivero, from the beginning that this was going to be a graphic novel. Right. There was no there was like there would be no point to just like to just write it. Like the idea of like like the idea of writing something like you know creating some piece of art and then not going on to present it to as many people as you can is just absurd to me. Like it doesn't make any, doesn't make any fucking sense, especially if you're going to make something good. Right. Well, so that he had that behind behind and was pushing. And I was like, well, what are we going to do? I mean, I don't know any artists that are going to do this for us. And we got on the internet and started looking and we ended up finding um, a company that's actually right out there in California. You said you were out in California. Yes, Uh, I am. It's called Scattered Comic Studios. It's located in Sacramento, California. And uh, the gentleman who runs it is a wonderful guy. His name is Jason Doobie. And uh, you can find it on the Internet, just, you know, uh, just uh, scatteredcomicstudios.com. And the way his studio works is that it actually has like a stable of artists, a stable of colorists. They have letterers. They have the whole you know, nine yards, and you literally can go through and pick your creative team. And uh, that's what we did is uh, Jason uh, helped us, you know, look through and pick out who we wanted as artists. And then what Jason does, is he serves as kind of the project manager. He's the go-between between the, you know, the creator and the art team and helps keep everything moving forward. And they, you pay per page, um, and it's like 50% ahead, and then 50% when the pages are done. You do them in groups, you know, pages. And uh, Jason was fabulous because Jason is a teacher, a natural teacher. Um, he's a really good human being, and he really was a great coach, and he was great for answering questions. And, um, you know, he's a, he writes himself, and he's an artist himself. And so the other side of his business is they actually run a, a comic book publishing company, Scattered Comics. And, uh, you know, so it was an incredible experience, a great experience with him. And we put that whole thing together. In fact, you can even see our covers and stuff like that are on his website. Um, and, uh, you know, I still stay in touch with him. Uh, and, I mean, it, it just turned out to be just a, an amazing experience. There are other um, companies like that. That's just, it turned out that that was the one that we went with. And I would recommend hit a scattered comics to anyone simply because of the quality of Jason, um, and how he really teaches you and guides you 
uh, for your first comic book and, and really kind of helps you get things lined up and, and moving forward in the right direction. That's outstanding. I didn't even know a, um, a service like that existed. That's fantastic. I didn't either. <laughs> Thank God for the internet, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, how we did it. And um, it was really an amazing experience, you know, and just the idea of being able to pick your own artist and, you know, having that, that stable together of all these different artists that you could look at their work, their samples, and, you know, see what artists you thought would fit your style, what you were trying, the tone, the mood. Um, and of course, that's how we got our colorist too. That, you know, before we started the interview, you were commenting on the color, the quality of the coloring of the book and, and her name is oh, just out. It's outstanding. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Her name is Heather Breckel and Heather is just, first of all, she's a, a wonderful person too. And just a tremendous talent as you, as you see. And I told you off, you know, off, uh, uh, the interview that, you know, she's done, uh, IDW's My Little Pony, IDW's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. She's done six Im uh, issues of Images, Peter Panzerfoss, which is a title that I really like a lot. Um, she's done Dark Horses Never Ending, and she's even done some recent stuff for Marvel and DC, I think. Really? She was on Never Ending? Yeah. And it's uh, Robert, Robert Love's book, right? I think that's who it is. It's been a while yeah. since I've looked at that, but... Uh, Recently, I know she's done DC and Marvel, like uh, the Marvel one that she did recently, if I remember correctly, is they did like a Spider-Verse thing. And it was like a, an anthology of different stories. And she did the coloring for one of those stories. And I know that was a big deal. We're all proud of her. And, you know, she's uh, she's a real talent and a sweetheart. Just a, Fantastic. Yeah, she's, she's a real sweetheart. So. Well, and um, what can you tell me about the uh, the guys who did the actual illustration for your book? Uh, the Our artist was... Uh, a, was uh, Ryan Showers. Ryan uh, is a, a young guy. He lives in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, he had done uh, some work beforehand, a couple of uh, two or three titles that he had done beforehand, but hadn't really, none of them had, had really, uh, you know, gone very far as, as I understand it. And uh, so this is really like his first foray into the bigger picture of the, you know, being published by a bigger press like Caliber, which by the way, Caliber, by comparison to say a DC and Marvel, obviously is not a big press, but uh, you know, it was his first opportunity to get published like that, and so that was it was a pretty amazing experience, I think, for him, uh, but certainly for us. And he's a you know a real talent, and was a joy to work with on our on our title. Overall, your project, your your product that you've put out is a very professional looking product. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. that, you know, that's something, again, I give credit to uh, Jason Doobie for really bringing that all together. Uh, we do have a, the, you know, lettering. I will tell anybody who wants to do a comic book, uh, don't sleep on the lettering. Uh, because for us, our original, we ended up having the book re-lettered because the first lettering was, uh, was not as good as we would have liked it to be. And uh, when we sent it out, when we did hear back from publishing companies, they had said that the lettering needed to be taken up a notch. So we hired a gentleman by the name of Jacob Vasquez, And Jacob is a very experienced um, uh, letterer. And he did, redid the lettering. And just to put this in perspective, I had sent this title, The Shepherd, to Caliber. And uh, it was like, this would be, this would be like, uh, I want to say July of 14, of 2014. And I didn't hear back from him. And then I re-lettered it and sent it out in December of 14. And two days later, I heard back from Gary Reed. 
two days later after re-lettering it and submitting it. And then two days or three days after that, he sent us a contract. So uh, the, don't sleep on the lettering. It's, it makes a big difference. And the lettering uh, is important because it protects the artwork. Instead of putting your lettering all over where it damages or obscures the art, it works with the art. And it also helps to control the pacing, the way that the reader moves through the story. And that's very important as well. So don't, you know, the work of the letterer often gets taken for granted, but a good letterer can really help out a book. Well, I think most casual fans just assume, well, anybody with a computer now can be a letterer. Yeah, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Yeah. I would definitely say that it's even more important for artists that don't have a lot of negative space. Like artists that really fill up a panel, uh, make it so that you need to have a really good letter to protect what they've done. I can, no, I can, I can definitely see that. Yeah, because it is. I mean, it's it's a design detail that I bet a lot of people don't put much thought into. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I and I learned the hard way. Like I said, when we did hear back from publishers, uh, it was pretty much unanimous that they were saying that's an area that needs to be redone. So that's okay. that. So we did. And we bit the bullet and we paid for it. And, and, uh, and I, you know, we'll be moving forward with Jacob. And I recommend anybody who needs a title, Jacob Bascula, uh, B-A-S-C-L-E. Uh, he's a Cajun living in California, in Southern Cal. Uh, but uh, I totally recommend it. So um, besides lettering, Andrea, what, or Roberto, either one of you, what is something that you were surprised to learn uh, that you discovered while making your comic? The surprise for me was how much I enjoyed watching it come to life. Like, I thought that it would be cool, but, like, I didn't mm-hmm. think that I would, like, like it as much as I did. Like, seeing uh, your words turn into this, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, like, movie on pages, like, mm-hmm. it just really, it's really, really cool. What Did you um, did you get to bag and board one of your own comic books after it got uh, published? You know, I don't think that we, uh, like, really did that. It never really occurred to us, like, uh, to be super sentimental about this. Um, okay. We may <laughs> – sorry about that. I think we may have somewhere tucked away one of our uh, original runs of the graphic novel, but I think that's about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, we, you know, when the first one came, we were real thrilled to see it. I mean, it's, there's nothing like holding a book that you've done – in your hands like that. It's a rush. Um, you know, I would answer, I'd certainly echo everything Barrow said. There's something powerful about seeing it all come together and seeing these pictures, you know, having the art come in is like having Christmas as a little child coming down the stairs to see Christmas morning when you're five years old. That's, that's what I would describe it as for me. But I would say one of the big things that I learned that was really amazing was just how much there is this kind of dance back and forth between the writer and the artists and the colorists and even the letterer as well. Um, there's that give and take where the other members of your art team see things in the script that you don't see. And one of the biggest lessons that I personally learned, and I, I think Berto would agree on this, is that you are not telling the story by yourself. As a writer, the biggest mistake you can make is have this all-consuming vision of what must be. You know, you write this script, you're, you know, you write these detailed descriptions of what you would like in each of the panels, and then, by God, you're going to make that happen. You know, you've got to say, these are ideas, suggestions, hopefully get the 
creative juices going, but then allow your artists and not just by saying that, I'm not just saying your pencilers, uh, but your colorists, your letters, let them talk to you, let them share with you ideas that they have and be open to the insights into the story that they have. And you will be amazed. I mean, I, you know, I was repeatedly amazed at the takes that they proposed and I kept using them over and over and over again uh, because I thought that they were things that would improve the um, the way that the story came across to the to the reader. And so that would be the thing that I would say. It's just this amazing uh, experience of telling a story with somebody else. So you found collaboration to actually be helpful in telling your story. Love it. it yeah, love it. Okay. Definitely. It's a rush. It really is. It's a rush. Well, that's cool because, yeah, I have heard of writers who kind of, like, go through artists a lot because, well, that's not what I had in mind when I wrote it, mm. you know. You hear it with uh, movie, uh, film writers and television writers as well. Yeah. I think it's yeah, a mistake. I really do because you are hiring an artist, and you they have this, you know, at the risk of sounding a little strange, I'm going to say is I, I've always looked at artists as if they have this kind of a supernatural connection anyway. And I'm not just mm-hmm. saying that from a religious point of view. But when you do artwork, I've talked with painters, I've talked with sculptors, I've talked with musicians, I've talked with writers, and they talk about feeling like that they have the art that, that, that they're working on, that they're pulling across from the other side, that they're like, they kind of see it in their mind's eye and that the artistic process is that process of dragging it into the, into our world, if that makes a sense, makes any sense. And um, if you believe that, as I do about artists, then to uh, not listen to their ideas of how to bring the art into this world, I think that's a mistake. I, mean, I really do. I think that's a fundamental error, uh, especially if you've hired them to be part of your, your team, uh, to really listen to them. Well, I've, well, yeah. Hmm, I would oh, say, I'm sorry, Roberto. Go ahead. Well, I would say like uh, like we've already uh, written a sequel and we're actually getting the art for that like uh, you know as like you know basically daily, uh, and it has kind of changed the importance of what I thought was going to be a really minor character to actually being not central to the storyline but much more important than like we had ever planned for, uh, just because of how the art uh, portrayed that character's interaction with the more uh, more like what I thought was going to be the much more important character. Um, Mm -hmm. So having that has kind of like actually changed how we viewed that and might alter the script just a little bit in the the future to feature that character more just because of their, uh, their new influence upon seeing the art. Yes. And that happens all the time. In my experience, you end up rewriting the, the script because what the artist gave you is better than what's in the script. Oh, it's outstanding. So when you write the script, I mean, Okay, so I don't know if you guys are familiar with the old term, the the Marvel method of writing a comic book, where they would basically plan out the panels but not the dialogue until they got the artwork back. Yeah, I, we don't do that. We when we when we finish a script, it's got everything. It's got the description of the panels. So in other words, each page, like I said, I use that thing that we found on Dark Horse's website, and the method that they propose is you know you have you start out with the page number, uh, how many panels will be in that page, and then. You know, you do the page, the panel, panel one description of what's there, even if it might it might be bigger or smaller, depending on how intense you're getting into that particular page. And then, you know, you have your captions. Everything is numbered. Uh, The captions, the um, 
you know, narrative comments, the uh, dialogue, you know, character, you know, the character uh, the response, that type of thing. Um, it's all there when the artist gets it. So they know they can look at that panel and see what I want to put in that panel. I, in fact, I joke with one of the one of the artists. He he provided this incredible art, and I'm just like, "You're killing me! Do you see what I got to put in that panel? You know, it's like I got to put this, these words, and by putting these words, I'm going to damage your art. I don't I don't want to do that. Can you let's let's reconfigure this? And what they ended up doing is they shifted the art to the uh, lower left corner of this panel which would turned out to be a bigger panel anyway so we could get away with it and that opened up the upper right for where we can do the lettering um and so it's that kind of as i said the dance that goes on between you know the, the members of the art team but um of course i was saying that in a joking fashion because his art was so dynamically good that i wanted to be very careful about not wrecking it you know but they know when they see the art they when they see the script they the artists you know they know what's going to go into that that panel or what the plan is. That's outstanding. So are you, are you using somebody you found through uh, scattered comic studios website again, or uh, we are not actually, uh, and okay. there's no, uh, no, nothing bad. It's just that we wanted to go in a particular direction and I didn't see anybody in the stable that I felt was going to be able to do. There were a couple that were close but a lot of it has to do with the mood that you're trying to get. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we ended up doing a much broader search for this second story arc. And the second story arc is actually going to be more, well, it's a more, it's a longer story arc to just to explain this. It, the first story is like 119 pages. The second story is 165. So it's wow. a much bigger story. Uh, the other thing is that we're dealing with multiple souls and our strategy in this, as Bird and I talked about it, was each of the souls sees reality through their own set of eyes. And so each of the souls, when their story is told, will be told by a different artist so that we can have a very visual, very obvious, you know, perspective change. And okay. so what that means is that we're probably going to be working with like four different artists. We're still kneeling down. We have two that are hard at work already. Um, and we've got another two or three that we're looking at. Um, you know, we're on the verge of plugging them in as well. Uh, but this is a different pro, you know, kind of project altogether. So we, we, uh, have definitely cast a much wider, uh, net. Uh, I've looked at places like, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but zol.com, Z-W-O-L, uh, which is a place where you can find artists. Uh, there's also Behance. Uh, you know, deviant art. These are all places where you can go uh, to look for artists. Um, you know, and then of course the Google searches. You know, trying to find you know people, Facebook, um, things like that. And then you know, the longer you're in this, the more you start to make connections with creators, other publishers, and then they introduce you to artists. You know, doing the convention circuit alone, you meet you know other artists, and you start to see people whose artworks you think maybe a good candidate for what you're trying to do with this particular story. Oh, I understand that completely. And yeah, you know, not all comic book artists are created equal. It's like John Romita Jr. I would, I don't think he draws a very good Superman comic, but I believe it was, um, his stuff he did at Marvel was outstanding. Yeah. So you do, you do have to have an artist that fits the, 
the mood and the feel of the book as well. Yeah. And then the other thing, of course, is not every artist can do comic book stuff because you have the guys who do guys and gals who do pinups and covers. Mm -hmm. And then you have the sequential artists. So you've got to look for the sequential artists. And then among the ones, you know, finding an artist, let me assure you of this. This is not an easy thing to do. I'll just tell you, okay, you have, you know, you have uh, a group of artists, okay? And of those artists, you have, as I said, you know, your pinup cover people, which you will use, you will need, okay, because you have to do covers. Uh, yes. And then promotional art and stuff like that. So you'll, you'll interact with them. But you're, but you're looking for the sequential artists. So you have, that cuts it down. You have these sequential artists. And uh, then you've got to find a sequential artist who is kind of in the ballpark of the, the, the mood and look that you're looking for. And then you have to find, of those, you have to find artists that are closers. And what I mean by that is artistic people in general. If you've ever met artistic people, one of the downsides of artistic people can be, doesn't have to be, but can be, is that they can be very ephemeral, you know, and mercurial. They, they uh, will get started with a project with great fervor, and then they will lose interest. Okay, this is not the artist that you want to sign, okay, uh, because you don't want to be in a situation where you're starting a project with somebody and then halfway through it, you know, they kind of lose interest. You don't want that. You want somebody who has got a good work ethic and, you know, is a closer and they have a record of, you know, doing precisely that. Um, the other side of that is you need to be willing to pay the artist, I am stunned at how many writers who think that they can offer the artist something on the back end and get away with that. I just think that's immoral. Okay. There's the amount of work that you're asking from an artist to do a single page, you know, a page may have five to seven panels or, or less, depending on what you're asking them to do. That's a tremendous amount of work. And then you want to offer them 25 bucks or you're going to offer them something on the back end when you know, here, let me explain something to you, and this is, you know, maybe a bigger picture, but just to help your listeners understand how comics work. When you are a small, you know, press title, when you are an independent, you know, comic book creator, there's not a lot of back end, okay? You're not selling tons and tons and tons of books. Uh, what really drove this home for me is I read this article, and I wish to God, I need to go back and find out who this is, but... The article was written by a gentleman who has a regular title published with Image. This is one of the, you know, outside of DC and, and Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, IDW, you know, these are some of the bigger non-big two type, uh, uh, publishing companies. And he basically said in his, you know, in his article that, you know, you think it's when you get picked up by image that it's, you know, the be all and end all. He said, well, basically what I can tell you is that my title is my most expensive hobby. Mm -hmm. Okay. Think about that for a second, what that means. So when, when a writer says to an artist, I'll pick you up on the back end, I have problems with that. I really do. I mean, because the back end is not going to be particularly lucrative. You know, um, you, I've made more money selling my books at cons, you know, than I get in terms of the, you know, your royalties from the publisher. And that's kind of common, you know. So you really, when you're looking out there to, to do an artist, you need to figure out what your budget can be. And it has to be reasonable. And you have to have, you know, expectations of what you're going to be able to get for that budget. 
And um, but you need to go in knowing that you're going to have to pay these artists. And that means you might have to get a part time job or an extra job to, you know, fund your graphic novel. And that's just speaking truth to you. You know, that's how it works. No, that's that's kind of interesting that you bring that up because. And, you know, you got two things going on here. Yes, a lot of artists are moment by moment. They're into a project, and then something shiny comes along, and, man, they're on to the next thing. But also, you know, when you're dealing with independent uh, comic creators, a lot of times we're talking about younger people. Yeah. And uh, probably, you know, Roberto's age and younger, I would assume. Sure. Um, so, like, you know, guys like me and you, you know, we have our full-time positions that we already put in our, our struggles to get to so we can be kind of comfortable. And, you know, having a podcast isn't cheap, but it's something I enjoy doing, so I throw a few hundred bucks at it, and I'm cool, you know. But younger people, your son's age, my son's age, it's it can be a little more difficult to, I mean, yeah, you know, we want to pay the artist, but where do you go to get the money to pay your artist? That's always kind of interesting to me to f- try to figure out how somebody could do that. Yeah, it's a challenge. It, it, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it is a challenge to have, but it's, well, it's something, you know, I think it's doable because, you know, like I'll tell you this, the, the shepherd that you read was a, mm-hmm. a little over $20,000 in the making. Okay? I'm sure it was. And, and it shows. Now that was done from, I started the artwork process in September of 2011 and we finished paying for it in January of 2015. Okay, we did our final covers in January of 2015. So the good news is, yeah, it's 20000 but, you know, that's for the beginners as you're learning this, you do it over time. And, you know, like, for example, if you pay your artist, say, you know, let's say that, it, like, well, for example, at the time that I was doing this with Scattered Comics, it was $120 a page for everything, okay, which is not that bad. Um, but it, that, that was colored and lettered? Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, now, again, we, we had to re-letter it, and that was about $15 sure. a page, you know, so do the math. Um, but you figure if you're doing a – and I would recommend if you're going to start out doing your first comic book, don't try to do a graphic novel. The only reason why I did a graphic novel is because, A, I had written a novel before that, so I had some experience, and, B, I had written before that three other books. So I knew how to close. I knew how to finish a publication. Um, But if you've never done it before, I would say write a one-shot comic book. So you're talking 22 to 25 pages in length, and you budget that. You say, if it's going to be $100 a page, so I need to somehow raise – dollars uh, to $2,500, okay? And you can do that by doing a Kickstarter campaign. Well, you may not get all of it, but even if you get a chunk of it, you can get started. You sock away, you know, when you get your paycheck at your job, you're going to have to sock some of that away. Or, like I said, get a part-time job. You know, it, this is, they're going to have to sacrifice. I mean, it's, you know, like that, that artist from, or the writer from Image when it's saying, this is my most expensive hobby. That's true. I don't do anything else. I, I literally, this, the shepherd is where my, any money that doesn't go to bills goes to the shepherd. That's how it works. You know, and I'm fortunate because my wife lets me do this, you know. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, your partner has to be pretty. They um, have to be down with it. That's what it comes yeah. down to. They, you have to have, it, you know, whether it's your significant other or whoever it is, they have, you need their support. You just do. That's, it's got to be there. You can't. You know, because it's a sacrifice. And, uh, 
you know, the thing is, we may do this shepherd and, you know, like just to put it in perspective here, we are working on the second, the sequel. Berto just this week sent me the first version of the third story arc. And meanwhile, I'm researching story arc number four. And uh, so we intend to be doing this for a while. Now, there's no guarantee about what's going to happen. I mean, you know, Caliber Comics does have, they've obviously, you know, they've brought products to, for movies and television. You know, The Crow, believe it or not, was originally a Caliber title. So that is the same company. Yes, it is. Now, it's I no did not realize with, that. The Crow is no longer, I don't want to give that impression, but is no longer with Caliber. But no, it no, but started Caliber out, Comics, it started Caliber out Comics has been around a long time, and I didn't realize that was the same one because I thought they bankrupted it. Well, they point. did. What ended up happening is they went from 89 to, I think, 2000, and then they relaunched, uh, I think it's in 2014. And so where uh-huh. we are, the second iteration, but it's the same publisher. So, I mean, and they've got, you know, they're bringing a lot of those old titles are being brought back into print. So, and, and they're taking uh, new, um, they're accepting sub, uh, submissions right now. Uh, they have a couple different ways you can go with that. You can you could submit. They have uh, Caliber Presents, I think is what it's called, right, Bertel? The, the anthology. Yeah, talk, yeah, yeah. The, basically, for the Caliber Presents thing, that's like a really short story. So you're talking about like usually eight to twelve pages. Sure, and that's online. a great way to begin. By the way, that's a great way for you know if somebody's listening and wants to get into comics. That's a great way to begin, and they take it. They take submissions. And then you could also, they'll take submissions for completed, you know, graphic graphic novels or completed titles, ongoing, you know, titles. But you would need to come to them with a complete art team, with a completed product, and drop it, you know, and and submit it to them. Um, But Gary's a great guy. Gary reads, he's been wonderful to us. And uh, he's, he's so patient. I've asked him about a billion questions, and the man still answers my emails, which is amazing. But, uh, yeah, I would totally recommend, you know, uh, working with him to anybody. And a lot, of, a lot of people don't know this, but there are a lot of people that are big names that have gotten their start with Caliber Comics. Uh, just rattle off a few. Um, Ed Brubaker, Brian Michael Bendis, uh, David Mack, who, by the way, is my favorite artist, uh, Guy Davis. I mean, there's a, quite a list of people that have, have uh, come through there and even people that have come through caliber and eventually have become um, have become uh, publishers in their own right. Like recently one of the uh, guys who was with caliber, uh, James Pruitt was made publisher of scout comics, uh, which is a smaller uh, press, but I mean, that's kind of cool to see that as well too. So caliber is, you know, they've done a lot of interesting contributions to the, uh, to the field. Caliber in the 80s and 90s actually had a lot going on. It was, um, it's my, the way I hear it told, because in the 80s and 90s, I was just a reader of comic books, you know. Right. I mean, the, the Shepherd Apocatastasis is our first foray. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, from what Gary says, that was kind of the heydays in the 90s. All kinds of amazing things were going on. Um, a lot yeah. of good interaction that they had with, you know, a lot of, you know, they were doing things like I know Caliber was doing things with, um, oh, God, the guy who does Spawn. Uh, McFarlane. McFarlane. Yeah, they were doing stuff with him. They they were doing business deals with him, all kinds of other, you know, cross pollination with other publishers and other creators. Yeah. You know, 
that's one of the things too that I really enjoy about this. I'll let Berto speak to it. Um, you know, the meeting when you go to these cons and you, you know, you, the comic book conventions and you're, you're selling your product and introducing people to your product, the chance to meet other creators has been yeah. amazing. At the, uh, I think it was like our first con, uh, I met a guy named Walter Osley, who has uh, basically self-published and produces a book called Shiver Bureau, which is like, you know, pretty good. I definitely enjoy reading it, but that's like one of the guys that we've met and have continued to talk to. And like, yeah. that's just, you know, one of the things that's like uh, picked up, like we met... Um, uh, but hold on, before you before you move on, I just let, let's uh, you know throw it to uh, Walter. Walter's Shiver Bureau is basically a mashup between like a Doctor Who and Ghostbusters. Imagine those two crashed together, um, and you can you can actually read it for free online. Shiver Bureau, uh, oh, wow. and Walter is you know it's actually done some um, some promo art for the Shepherd. That's why I want to mention him. Uh, that I'm actually going to be revealing this week. Uh, my birthday, my 49th birthday, by the way, is coming up on Thursday. And so my birthday present to everybody, to my fans, is I'm going to show them two new pieces of art that Walter did for us on commission. And I'm really, I mean, these things are, yeah, they're off the chain. And I'm really excited uh, to to see people's reaction to them. So anyway, go ahead, Berto. And I was going to say that at our first, I want to say it was our first comic book signing. So just, uh, you know, comic book signing at a, at a shop is that's where we met Bodan, right, Dad? Yeah, we have another friend of ours who's a writer and creator. His name is Bodan Nezwiacheni, uh, which is Ukrainian, by the way. That last name. He he writes a series of different titles: Blackbird, uh, Morning Star. Uh, he's just come out with a new one called Souls Eternal, and uh, he's you know prolific writer, prolific creator. Um, and he's another one that's interesting because his background is in film. His original background is in film, and of course the writing, you know screenplays and that stuff and then it's kind of brought that into uh comics but he still has his hand in in uh doing you know independent film as well well that's outstanding well and this is kind of an exciting time to be into comics again because for the first time but we set a record for comic book sales in 2016 that they haven't seen that number since 1997 oh it's good it's good to see yeah and if i remember correct i'm i'm gonna step all over this one pretty hard but <laughs> Actual paper book, I mean, just book general in sales have been on the increase again since 2014, and I believe they've been growing at like 15 or 20 percent a year. Wow. And I thought I thought paper publishing was dead, but it turns out more to have been a circumstance of the downturn than it was a trend in reading. I think that's true. Also, I think that yeah. what people are reading, my understanding is that people are more and more interested in reading like graphic novels and or complete story arcs. So whether it's like Batman or Superman or Spawn or The Shepherd or, you know, Peter Panzerfoss, people like to get those trade paperbacks or the hardcover, you know, where they collect seven issues or six issues story arc. You know, I'll tell you that's how I prefer to get them. I agree yeah. because, you know, I it's much more enjoyable for me to read a story, get into a story and then be able to read it from beginning to end. And I can understand why people like that. And so my understanding is sales are changing in terms of people buying more and more of those collected uh, works. Um, it's also you can put them on your, your bookshelf, too, which is nice. Oh, absolutely. But also think about how we watch television now. Oh, too. I know. That's, that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. 
we want we want beginning to end. We want to be, you know we want to binge watch that ten episodes yeah. of whatever's on Netflix. The Netflix style season drop. Yeah. yeah, it's um you know so it makes sense to me that we kind of prefer to read that way. But what on top of that though, individual comic sales are up too. So mm-hmm. you know let's all cheer for people having disposable incomes again too. Yeah, yeah. That, that helps. It was a rough time. Yeah. We saw you know when our, when when two thousand eight had a major downturn we saw our local comic book shop ended up having to fold because they just mm-hmm. so many of the young people no longer had money to to uh spend they could barely yeah. barely make it you know so well and not to keep beating that drum but that was 2009 was a very bad year for me i'm a plumbing salesman oh, okay. in central california so when people quit building yeah i did i didn't have a job wow. and then two weeks later we had a child have a drug overdose oh god and so it was, I mean, when I, when I, like, when I'm being real morose, I tell people I stayed drunk for a year and people chuckle. No, I stayed drunk for a year now. Okay. You know, yeah. but, um, for us, it was a bad, bad time. And I remember looking, I mean, I sold cars for two years cause you got to eat. Right. right. Yeah. And I remember looking around and, you know, there was a point here where my, like our eight closest couple friends, nobody was working. Wow. And yeah, you know, I mean, it was bad, bad time. I remember people just like you know, you cut cable, you cut everything you didn't have to have, and I'm just glad to see that people that take a risk now with a little bit of time and money or a lot of time and money, like you guys have done, there's some payoff for it. Yeah, no, it's you know, I think the key thing. I may have scared some people with the reality, but I think it's better to tell people the truth, you know, about how this works. Um, I think if you go into comics with the right kind of expectation and see for me, this is going to sound weird and I hope this doesn't come back to bite me is that, you know, I'm not worried about Marvel or DC noticing me. Okay. Now that is not to say if I got a phone call, you know, from Joe Quesada, oh, sure. well, you know, I'd take that phone call. Um, but I am very content writing the shepherd. I really am. Um, and I, I love the control that we have, uh, the teams that we assemble to work on these stories. I love working with my son. Um, I'm happy doing this. And I, if nothing changes, I'm okay with that. I just My biggest desire is to have people read the book and enjoy it, have it touch them. So even though it was tough, like with you, you know, mm-hmm. even Jeremy, that it was tough, it matters to me that it did resonate with reality you know that yes that absolutely captured feelings and evoked emotions you know um and even you know one of the things that's very important to me is you know the idea that you know we've all lost people that are really matter to us in in my case it's really my father you know and my father appears by the way as a character as you know in the book franco is my dad yeah. and i lost my dad uh back in 2005 um to uh, cancer, bone marrow cancer. And they diagnosed him March 26th and dad was gone May 15th of the same year. And it, I was not ready to lose him. I was not ready to lose him. And it was the most devastating loss I had ever encountered. And, uh, you know, there are still, I'm sure you know this, there are still days where you hear the right song on the radio or the right thought comes into your head and you're right back there again. And it's like, Oh yeah. It's just as fresh as it just happened, you know? And uh, so that idea of being able to 
reunite with the people that we care about on the other side really is an important idea for me. You know, and that is an idea that is very much part of the Shepherd series. Uh, and not just the first story, but really all the stories. Uh, dealing with souls that have, you know, what, if I were to describe, you know, the Shepherd, the Shepherd, once he got over to the other side, his role is that of helping souls that have suffered trauma from this life that are haven't been able to let go, haven't been able to heal, that are in the afterlife. We have a place called the seam. We deliberately did not call it purgatory because I don't want to evoke Dante's purgatorio. I want right. to be able to define this in our own way. And the seam well, is... And we also don't want to like allude to the, you know, the dynamic of a heaven hell and then purgatory in the middle because like in our... Uh, in our uh, world, there isn't a set, a real hell in the way that people normally think of it. Right, exactly. So we wanted to be able to redefine this in our own way. And this place, the theme, is a, is a place where uh, these souls haven't been able to let go of the wounds, the hurts, the different disappointments that they experience in this life, and that they need help transitioning. And uh, what they need is different, each individual soul, you know, uh, but in many cases, they are still reliving the events that they um, that they encountered. I would say that in a lot of ways, we're heavily influenced by work, you know, like I am a big fan of Guillermo del Toro. Okay. Um, and in particular, everyone knows his Pacific, you know, rim and and his work on Hellboy and and that kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love I love that stuff. But I really like his work, like The Devil's Backbone. If you haven't seen this, you need to see this movie. It's in Spanish, and uh, it has the subtitles, but it is so totally worth your time. And, if, of course, if you're bilingual or Spanish is your language, then, you know, run with it. But it's a superb movie. And the reason why I bring it up, and also, like, was it Crimson Peak that he did recently? Um, there's also a film that he was involved in called The Orphanage. I don't think he wrote The Orphanage, but I think he was involved directing it, producing it. Um, but what these movies have in common is the idea of a soul that is haunting, a ghost that is haunting a place, not because they're trying to scare people, but because they can't let go of something that happened to them. And once they're able, brought to a place where they can let that go, where it gets resolved, then that soul can move on. And in a lot of ways, that's the dynamic that you encounter in Shepherd stories. Okay. Well, that makes a certain amount of sense. Let me, you know, Andre. So, again, what you're, you're a teacher, or what is your what is your day to day job? Uh, well, I have. This is an interesting answer. So quickly, sure. I've, I'm trained as a professor, and I've have a background. I've taught for Creighton University in Omaha. I've taught for Barry University uh, in uh, Miami. Miami Shores, and that is my love, is to do the university teaching. Uh, but right now, the job market is very bad uh, in the academic world, and the position that I had with Barry University got downsized. I was the head of a satellite office, and it got downsized, so I lost my job. And so now I am working with a online real estate education company. Uh, oh, okay. And where, how that's going I know virtually, I'm learning about real estate. I'm no expert by any stretch of the imagination. But um, why they liked me is, number one, I have lots of experience with video teleconferencing, and that's a mode modality that they they use. And the other thing is that I have um, 14, 15 years of academic administrative experience 
heading up programs, being, you know, basically dean or president. And so they love that, you know, kind of academic background to head up, you know, uh, the academic program. And of course, I'm not teaching the real estate. I'm working with the teachers who do the teaching. And so that's where um, that's the work that I'm doing right now. Gotcha. But your background was, I mean, it's in theology. I'm a professor yeah, that's... of early Christianity. Uh, the literature and the history is really my my background. So, yeah, I, I do New Testament early church uh, work, uh, basically the first 450 years uh, of uh, of Christianity. Well, and the reason I was asking about this, because your books deal, you're kind of creating your own mythology about an afterlife yeah. or an ongoing immortality of the soul. And I'm always interested in, so, God, here I'm, I'm talking too much about. Myself. No, that's fine. Do it. Um, I am a either soft atheist or a hard agnostic. It's hard to say where I come down on this thing. Okay. But I enjoy talking to people, uh, religious people especially, or people who are scholars of biblical uh, background teaching and the actual words in the Bible. Because I listened to a friend of mine go on for an hour about the meaning of the word Gehenna and was completely fascinated by this whole concept that he had. Sure that hell really didn't exist in the Bible until the hell, uh, the Hellenization Correct. of Christianity. Correct, yeah. yeah. Well, that's and since I've read about it, they were also getting influenced. The, uh, the Jews, the Jewish people were also getting influenced from the East as well, because the demonic uh, stories and things like that are also coming from, you know, uh, Mesopotamia as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and even like, you know, some of the earliest names for gods, could mean demon or, you know, the whole thing I just found fascinating. Sure. But I have always been, the afterlife side of Christianity fascinates me more because as you start to realize that, like, our ideas of heaven are more based on the Elysian fields or at least Zeus's uh, cloud top hiding, hide, hideout spot yeah. or hell being like in the ground well you realize well that's more like hades or pluto though it's more tartarus actually because hades is not a place this is one thing that drives me crazy you see this in hollywood hades is Mm -hmm. not a place of of of, uh necessary torment um it's 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 not and especially fire fire is not something that's typically associated with hades that's tartarus the pit um you know which is where the titans were thrown uh in the greek mythology Mm-hmm. Uh, so Hades, Hades uh, you know, it's kind of a dry and dusty, bland, kind of not good existence, shadowy existence. Uh, it's not a place that's particularly desirable. Everyone ends up there or most people end up there. Uh, it's not a place that's great, you know. Uh, you know, and there's even different characterizations of it. I mean, like, one of the things I would recommend to you that will certainly has influenced me is, in Plato's Republic, book 10, last book of, of Plato's Republic, is a, it, is a story called The Myth of Air, E-R. And uh, The Myth of Air, basically, the story, and I'm giving the Reader's Digest of this, sure, is sure. a soldier, Air is a soldier who has died in combat, supposedly. And three days, I think, after the battle, they're gathering up the bodies and they're going to burn them on funeral pyres because if you know anything about the Greeks, Proper burial is really important. Otherwise, you can't go into the afterlife. You can't cross the river Styx if you haven't been buried properly. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so they're burning these bodies to dispose of them, bury them properly. And air wakes up on the funeral pyre just before they're going to light it. 
And he begins to recite his description of what he saw in the afterlife. And he describes, you know, souls that were evil or tyrannical being punished, uh, souls being rewarded for what they did right. And then kind of a middle ground uh, place where most of the souls ended up where it was not bad. It was just kind of, you know, ordinary, but not bad. And uh, but what's interesting in his conception is that for the most part, even the souls that were punished were punished for a time. Now, there were some that were punished longer, the tyrants, the really bad guys, but they were very few. They were very few. They would be like in modern conception, like an Adolf Hitler or a Joseph Stalin or somebody that is considered to be, you know, uh, Pol Pot or somebody like that, that would be just a monstrous, tyrannical figure. Um, mm -hmm. But even the rewards were temporary. So in other words, you were rewarded for a certain amount of time and then your souls were processed back in for a reincarnation where the, the myth of error actually describes these chits, if you will, that had descriptions of different lives where the souls would choose a chit uh, without some of them, without looking at it carefully. Uh, like this one, this chit might have a lot of money. This person might be very wealthy, but then they had to kill their own son to maintain their wealth and power. You know, they don't see, they don't pay attention when they pick up the chit, but once you pick it, you know, you take it, you, 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 you touch you 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 pay for it kind of thing and uh right. but that's an interesting source of this kind of stuff so i am very much with you in reading a lot of these uh conceptions of the afterlife christian non-christian jewish he, um egyptian i've read the book of the dead and studied their conceptions of the afterlife and uh very interested in all of that stuff yeah it's fascinating stuff um, gosh, guys, we're, I am really enjoying this conversation, but I got to wrap this up because I don't, I don't want to put this out and have people get bored of hearing us. Well, hopefully they won't. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm afraid we could do this for three hours and then they would, but let me do this instead. Let me say, uh, anytime you guys want to come back on, All right. please do. I would love to have you back. I've had a blast talking to you. Great. We've enjoyed it too. Absolutely. Uh, um, guys, if somebody wants to get a hold of your book, how can they find it? Okay, um, here's the rattle off. Uh, you can, of course, go to the www.calibercomics.com. Uh, the Shepherd is easily found there, as well as all the other wonderful Caliber titles. Um, you can easily get our title on Amazon, uh, which is you know probably the, the easiest way uh, for you to get it. You can order it through your own local comic book store, which we are big fans of local comic book stores and we want to support them. Uh, we were carried in previews of November 2015, uh, which is the diamond, you know, if you've ever seen it, the big catalog, diamonds catalog. Um, the item code is November 15, 1223. That's November 15, 1223. And you could order it by giving that item code to your to your um, guys and gals at your local comic book store, that's how you would easily be able to order it locally. But you can also, it's available digitally on Comixology, Drive Through Comics, uh, Google Books. It's on Kindle via Amazon. Um, I'm probably forgetting some, but those are some certainly some of the major ones uh, that you can get it there. Outstanding. And if uh, people, do you guys have your own website uh, that supports the comic? Uh, well, we have our primary thing is our Facebook page uh, that okay. we, we keep very much up to date. And that's uh, the Shepherd at Caliber Comics, E-N-T as in entertainment. Um, we also have a Twitter account at Shepherd Caliber. And uh, and then we're, we have Instagram 
uh, Tumblr as well. Uh, but if you find us, uh, you know, on Facebook or, or Twitter, you'll certainly be able to find all the other stuff as well. But, uh, yeah, we definitely, we love to have people, you know, we respond to people who uh, talk to us over, over these media. We're always happy to meet fans and talk to people. And if somebody's on the fence about the book, if you go to the Facebook page, um, there is a video there that gives kind of the trailer for the shepherd and you can actually download a digital copy of issue one for free. So you can see uh, if you like it. Well, fantastic. Well, I'm definitely going to try to find you guys on Facebook and follow you on there. I already follow you on Twitter. Cool. Very cool. Um, Let's see here. So that's everywhere people can find you. Anything else to say before I wrap up? Well, we thank you for, you know, I certainly thank you. I'm sure Berto, you know, as I speak for him, but um, yeah, right. Thank you. Thank you for the time, you know, and, and for doing this for us. Uh, you know, this is really important for uh, small publishers and independent creators because it gives us a chance to kind of talk about our work and be known by people who might not encounter us otherwise. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's always fun to discuss this stuff anyway. Well, yeah, and it, it really is. I enjoy talking to people like yourselves who have – I'm really just said, hey, I've got this idea, and come hell or high water, we're going to make this happen. It, it's really interesting to, for me to talk to you about it, but hopefully maybe somebody out there will listen and be able to learn something from it as well. I hope so. Yeah. And, and um, if somebody, and, I will say this, if somebody is listening to this and they want help, feel free to contact us, uh, Berto or myself, uh, and you know we would certainly help you. We would certainly you know advise you. We could introduce you to people that we know. Uh, who can help you. Certainly Jason Doobie is one of them that I would recommend wholeheartedly. Uh, and like I said, we can talk to you about the process of submission and coach you up a little bit, give you a little advice. Well, that's outstanding. And have you guys found other small uh, uh, creators to be very helpful oh, yeah. in this process? Absolutely. Like yeah. the, uh, the guys that we've talked to, we've learned like so many small like tips and tricks and like expectations about different cons, stuff like that. Like these guys, we all talk like whenever we go to cons, especially, and we're all there together, like, especially when we've got downtime, we're all mm-hmm. talking about the creative process, like what to expect, you know, things that help, whatever. Like it's, we always talk. Yeah, definitely. I'm one of the, uh, one of my friends is a gentleman named Travis McIntyre. He happens to be the, the head guy over at source point press, which is a Michigan, small Michigan comic book publisher that focuses in, most of their titles deal with horror topics. They do some really cool stuff. I'm not, not exclusively horror, but that's one of the major things that they do. Anyway, Travis has been a huge help to me, advising me, you know, uh, talking to me about artists, suggesting artists, uh, you know, kind of helping me kind of get up and running with the promotion of the book and all kinds of other stuff. So, yeah, you know, the other creators are a great community, people to work with. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening to geekish cast and uh guys andrea roberto thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it thank you mm-hmm. and in the meantime everybody can find us at geekishcast.com i'm on facebook at facebook.com slash geekish cast i tweet from at the geekish cast you can also find us on itunes uh stitcher spreaker soundcloud and everywhere else where you listen to your podcast thank you everybody and we'll talk to you next week Geekish Cast theme music is taken from Out to Get Mine by Reign of Zaius. Check them out at reignofzaius.net.
Thank you for listening to Geekish Cast. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. You can find us on iTunes, Android, TuneIn, Stitcher, and on our own website at geekishcast.com. Geekish Cast is a BS and Ficker production, and all original content is copyright 2016. If you got a thought or a comment or think you or somebody you know would be a good guest for Geekish Cast, please feel free to reach out and contact me. You can email me, thegeekishcast at gmail.com, or jeremy at thegeekishcast, or you can even phone me at 209-232-6001. 